0: Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Homa Haq, the Associate Director of the South Asia Center here at the Atlantic Council. Uh, on behalf of my colleagues and our President Frederick Kemp, I'm delighted to welcome you all here today for a discussion with Jibran Nasser on Pakistan and the citizens' fight for a voice. Violent extremism and growing radicalization continue to present a serious threat to, and challenge to Pakistan's stability. School children to rights activists and everyone in between have become targets of violence. And so we're all aware of Pakistan's Pearl Harbor moment on December 16, 2014, when militants attacked the uh, army public school in Peshawar and shook Pakistan to its core. Then 2015 kicked off with a bomb blast in January at a Shia mosque in the Shikharpur district of Sindh province. April saw the murder of Sabine Mahmood, one of Pakistan's most prominent civil society uh, activists and director of the second floor T2F in Karachi. And most recently, just two weeks ago, gunmen killed nearly 45 Ismailis in a bus attack in Karachi. These are the incidents that that received wide media coverage, but there are undoubtedly many more that go unreported. And so I personally have been following Gibran's work for the past few months, and I'm extremely delighted that he's here with us today. In the aftermath of the Peshawar attack, he has been leading the citizens' movement against terrorism, organizing and running two grassroots groups, Pakistan for All and Never Forget Pakistan, that campaign for the Pakistani government to shut down extremist militant groups. As a result, he's been arrested, he's received threats from the Taliban, and he's been accused of blasphemy by banned militant groups. They have tried to silence him on more than one occasion, but he continues steadfast in his pursuit of his goal to stop extremist violence. This is clearly easier said than done, but surely he'll speak to his work in greater depth. Before I introduce Gibran, I would like to thank my friend Fawzi from the OSF, Open Society Foundations, for giving me this opportunity to, have, uh, to host Gibran here today. Um, I'm gonna give a brief background on Gibran, then we're gonna go to a video, and then Gibran's gonna offer some opening remarks and, and go through a PowerPoint. So he's a 28-year-old lawyer by training turned civil rights activist uh, who contested the 2013 general elections as an independent candidate from Karachi. His platform was really um, a secular manifesto that emphasized the importance of countering religious intolerance and terrorism as Pakistan's top priorities. He's been featured by Foreign Policy Magazine in 2013 as one of three Pakistanis doing notable work against sectarian violence. He's also a regular writer for the Express Tribune and DAWN and has hosted a current affairs show on DAWN News. So we're going to queue up to the the video now. (laughs)
1: Talking about politics in Pakistan, it's a way of life. It's the same as eating and breathing and sleeping. The same way random acts of violence are a way of life. I went back to Pakistan for my cousin's wedding. The day before I arrived, the Peshawar attack happened. Almost 140 children were killed in a ridiculous, senseless act of terrorism. Some called it Pakistan's 9-11. I couldn't believe this was the reality I was entering. I wanted to understand more about what was happening in Pakistan, and so I had all these conversations with people. And one name kept coming up.
2: Pakistan! Pakistan!
1: <laughs> Mohammed Gibran Nasser. What I learned about Gibran was that he was part of the community of people who held hands around churches to keep non-Muslims safe. He led an organization called Pakistan for All that was helping people be safe from blasphemy laws. I knew he was someone doing something different in a country that needed it.
2: Listen to the soothing voice of Hasan. It's like anything you're reciting. If it's not a pleasant voice, it would not attract you. I mean, if I had talked to you about progress and development in a very condescending manner, you would not really pay heed to it. And that's the same thing with religion. That People are sitting uh, on the pedestals and podiums and mosques and in talking to people in such a condescending manner and trying to instill fear in them you'd rather than make people love them back and respect them.
1: Do you think it's possible to be truly independent
2: in Pakistan? Yes, it is completely possible. You need to have alliances yet, associations yet, but not dependence, Not anything which compromises your values. I was not allowed to state simple facts on television because they were considered too controversial. Similarly, the political party, they will take my freedom to express myself.
1: In Pakistan, there's no separation between church and state. Islam controls all public and private matters. The people depend on their mosque leaders for almost everything. Laws, justice, guidance. After the Peshawar tragedy, Abdulaziz, the cleric of the Central Mosque of Islamabad, known as the Lal Masjid, released a statement claiming that he would, in fact, not condemn the attacks.
3: As a response to which Gibran and a few of uh, his friends gathered outside Lal Masjid the first day and lit, just lit a little paper lantern.
1: Leaders of the Masjid threatened to shut them down, so Gibran turned to social media. The next day, over 400 people showed up and demanded the arrest of Abdulaziz.
3: It just evolved. It was this organic evolution of, of people just coming out. And young, you know, sort of new groups of people who maybe haven't come out in the past.
4: He gets a call from Asanullah
3: Hassan, who is the spokesman for the Jamaat al saying basically that if you do not back up from my friend, Maulana Abdul Aziz, we're going to kill you, we're going to kill your
5: family, we're we'll going to kill your friends. And there's a recording of this and it's been published in the news as well. You take this cancerous lot out, you have the rest of Pakistan a cutting across social divisions and ethnic divisions and various religious divides. You have the average Pakistani who Jibran Nasir is appealing to, who this movement is appealing to.
3: It's the first time that uh, people have openly and publicly spoken about uh, issues of extremism and blasphemy.
5: There's no doubt as to what Abdul Aziz and his court are intending to do to Jibran. They are trying deliberately and consciously to frame him with a blasphemy charge. And when that happens in Pakistan, it encourages some vigilante lunatic to go and do some harm to the accused. We have that experience. We've
3: lost friends and comrades. Shan's father was killed on that accusation.
2: It will get more worse and more dangerous for us. But if you want to bring about change, and if you want to reclaim space, then we have to enter the territory they have encroached upon. Mm -hmm. So that would mean endangering your life.
3: citizens who are motivated. We have day jobs. Some are accountants, some are lawyers, some are journalists. We are not part of
2: any political party. We're not making any money for this. This isn't a commercial venture. This is in many ways a socialist movement given how few resources we have. Not because of ideology I guess but (coughs) socialist by certain stuff.
3: He doesn't come from money, he doesn't come from power. Maybe people will see him and say
2: Living is about speaking your mind. Living is about standing for what you believe in. Living is about taking charge. Living is about being alive. And if you're alive, then you're out there.
3: So it's ordinary people who feel that if they don't act, they will lose their humanity once and for all.
2: Our main aim is something much bigger than the rest of abilities. It's uh, about instilling that belief in the people that if you have the right will and if you move in the right direction, then against all kinds of odds, you will actually surpass them. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you so much for coming today uh, on a weekday and making time. Um, I'm being told that since uh, we need to entertain uh, more questions today and have it more of an interactive session, so I'm going to quickly rush through the presentation and try to give as many facts as I can in between. Um, the movement currently right now, yes, started because of a particular cleric in a, in a mosque, in a central mosque in Islamabad, not condemning the Peshawar attack. but What empowers that cleric to actually be audacious enough to not condemn that attack is something we've been trying to understand. What is that one thing which does not make him afraid of the state, of the government, of the military? What is that one thing which he believes is protecting him in Pakistan? And many other like him who are using mosques as shops of terror and are reducing house of, of God as places to recruit more young people, and radicalising them further with impunity, without any accountability. Um, The focus today for my presentation to just make people understand, uh, and I'm only giving it as an example. I'm not saying this is a complete picture, but because we only have so much time here, I can only hit upon one particular group. There are around 60 banned outfits in Pakistan, 34 of them 34 of them are banned because of spreading sectarian hate and violence, or killing in the name of religion. Uh, One of those outfits is an outfit called Sippai Sahaba, which gave birth to another splinter group called Ashkari Jhangvi. Uh, The names, as far as terrorism is concerned, which people usually hear are Bin Laden, or Mullah Umar, or Zawahiri, or Baghdadi these days. But as far as Pakistan is concerned, I think the most relevant name right now given the kind of future we headed to, is Ahmed Ludhianvi. And Ahmed Ludhianvi uh, was recently interviewed by Al Jazeera, and Ludhianvi is the head of Sepai Sahaba. And Sepai Sahaba is a banned outfit in Pakistan. It's been banned when we were being ruled by dictators under Musharraf's era in 2002. And it has resurfaced time and again under different names. And very recently, during the Democratic government of the Pakistan People's Party in the year 2012, it was banned again. Officially on paper, the outfit has been banned thrice, and when they say it's been banned, it means it's been identified under the Anti-Terrorism Act, which means that outfit or any of its member are forbidden from giving any statement in public, whether on print, electronic, or digital media. They cannot have an office, they cannot hold a rally, they cannot publish any print literature, they cannot have any kind of congregation, and they cannot even introduce themselves as a member of that particular organization. So, in effect, at least on paper, uh, every single activity of their or the association with the banned outfit is curbed. Now, um, but what is going on in Pakistan is something different. Yes, this is the narrative I bring with me that we are not a country of Taliban apologists because I am a Pakistani and there's a Pakistan inside of me, and I see some people here from Pakistan sitting in the audience and not every Pakistani is a Taliban apologist, but we are, growing, we are facing with a surging and a growing number of people identifying themselves more, and that's primarily because they are being exposed to that kind of radical literature by groups like Sepai Sahaba more effectively than by progressive, secular, liberal groups. And the government in itself is failing to take control of the problem. And um, yes, we have lost more than 50,000 civilians and more than 5,500 soldiers on what we still describe as the U.S. war on terror and not accepting as our own war because our own existence is in question right now. And the 50,000 civilian bit is becoming slowly a cliche in Pakistan. This figure is thrown around on prime-time television when we talk about terrorism. And what we're not wondering is these people are gone now. They're not there anymore, but they've left behind families and friends and communities they belong to. And they've left them traumatized in a certain way because when somebody is killed in a terror attack, your body is either shattered or destroyed because of bomb blast or it is riddled by bullets. And a loved one actually goes to see or bury you the kind of trauma they go through. And we're dealing with people because violence is becoming a way of life. Because groups like Sepah Sahaba are allowed to actively roam around and go about sick killing. Violence is becoming such a way of life that even the groups on which violence is being inflicted have become immune to it. And now they don't think twice when inflicting violence on someone else. So in certain ways, the oppressed is also becoming the oppressor when they get an opportunity because they're desensitized and dehumanized. This is a very interesting visual. Two groups of people, both uh, resulting into mob violence. Both pictures taken in the same city of Pakistan, Lahore. And in both pictures, even though it's a mob, even though it's violence and riots going on, people are celebrating. The man in the picture above is in early 20s. And in the picture below, you can see kids as old as 11 and 12 in that picture celebrating. And in both instances, violence erupted in Pakistan. And both, by the way, are different groups. When we talk about riots and mobs and violence in Pakistan, the first religion which may come to our mind may be Islam. But as this picture would show you, or these pictures would show you, the man above is a Muslim. The people below are Christians, all of them. In the picture above, a mob went in into a Christian colony trying to hunt a man who was accused of blasphemy. And in trying to burn his house down, they ended up burning more than half the colony and God knows killing how many people. And the state failed to react immediately and intercept and intervene. And as you can see, they have no shame of what they have done right now. And they're clenching their fists and they're posing to the cameras and they're not hiding their face because they believe that perhaps in the Islamic Republic, enforcing God's law, and vindicating and protecting the honor of the prophet and punishing anybody accused of blasphemy is their God-given right. And they, in many cases, are assuming the role of the state by become, becoming the enforcer. In the picture below, a mob of Christians has come out. And this was just two months ago in Lahore. And this is a new trend, not a regular occurrence, but this may very well become a regular occurrence because it's only so much a particular group can take. And there's only so much violence you can inflict on in a particular group before they react back. Two bomb blasts went off outside two churches in Lahore during Sunday Mass. And these people who were attending the congregation, they came out protesting that why was it that when two years ago, our colony was being burned, and now when our churches are being attacked, there is no police protection to be seen. And they came out again as a mob trying to uh, vandalize public property. And in the midst of that anger, some miscreant in the mob pointed out to two conservatively dressed Muslim men with long beards and dressed in shalwar kameez, the same kind of clothes I'm dressed in right now. And they pointed at them and said, these are the suspects from the attack. And as you can see in the mob, kids as young as 12 and 13, rather than thinking that let's call in the police and hand these two suspects to the police, they thought that the police never helps us, the state never helps us. When our houses are being burned, when our churches are being attacked across Pakistan, we never get help. So they also became the judge, jury, and executioner. And the black debris you see them dragging is actually a m- man's body burnt alive few minutes ago before it was being dragged in. Both of them, the both suspects, were burnt alive in front of these children. And as you can see in this picture, the children aren't traumatized. They aren't shivering out of fear. They aren't running to their mothers. They are celebrating as if they, Pakistan may have won a cricket match. And the video came out on Facebook when these two people are being burnt alive. And that video was shot with a smartphone. And what that video showed was when the mob was burning down these two people, the whole mob had taken out their smartphones, even these kids, and they were filming and recording it. The sight or the smell wasn't bothering them. They were not shivering. And this is not because Christians are radicals or Muslims are radicals. It's because when violence becomes a way of life, people get dehumanized and desensitized and they don't really think twice when inflicting violence on someone else as well. The man above is not a member of any terrorist organization. He is a normal citizen who thinks that enforcing blasphemy law in Pakistan is his God-given right, and the people below, the Christian mob, is also not a group of any terror outfit. Common citizens who believe that it's now upon them to protect their own and to kill any suspect they may find. In both instances, the man above is perhaps not afraid of the state, and the people below don't have any faith in the state. In both instances, the government of Pakistan, the executive, the parliament seems to have failed the people, that either people are not afraid of it or they don't have any faith in it. And in both instances, they're trying to resume the role of enforcing law in whatever way, form and manner, which originally the state is supposed to do. And this man right now, under democracy, This man presents or represents the state of Pakistan, the prime minister. Now, I was talking to you about Ahmed Lujanvi at the beginning, the founder of Sipa Sahaba. And he was recently interviewed by Al Jazeera. That interview just came out last week. And he said a very interesting thing. That even though his outfit is a banned outfit, even though he is a declared militant in Pakistan, he told Al Jazeera that he has been personally assured by parliamentarians Uh, the Government of Pakistan would not take any action against his particular banned outfit. The National Action Plan which was designed after the Peshawar attack to have a massive crackdown on all these banned outfits and to not not show them any mercy and to cut all of their activities. Ahmed Udjanvi says that parliamentarians have assured him that he would not be touched upon by that. Now that begs the question, who are those parliamentarians? Uh, this right now is the Prime Minister of Pakistan, apparently the most responsible man, the man solely responsible for running the country. Anything goes wrong, technically, it's him who's supposed to be answerable because he is the chief executive. And this man, for all of those who do not know who, how Ahmed Ludyanvi looks like, this is Ahmed Ludyanvi and he is the head of Sipai Sahaba. And for me, Sepa Sahaba right now, and also as start should prove, is the most proliferated, radical group in Pakistan working out of every single big, small urban center, having chapters all across the city, working with an open manifesto that on the legal and on the political end, they want to declare every single Shia Muslim as an infidel under the constitution. And on the militant end, they go about killing Shias indiscriminately. So I'm just going to go to the previous slide. The Prime Minister Lodhanvi saying that parliamentarians have assured them that the national action plan, which the prime minister made, would not impact him. And this could be a reason, perhaps. Because the prime minister takes out time to wine and dine the biggest terrorists in Pakistan. But then would beg the question that prime minister only forms part of the treasury benches of the parliament. And then there's always an active opposition in parliament to point fingers and say, why is the prime minister sitting and what kind of a meeting he may be having with the perhaps the biggest terrorist in pakistan so we would look at the opposition leader of in the parliament who's supposed to make sure that the prime minister stays in check this is the opposition leader his name is khursheed shah he belongs to a left of center party called the pakistan people's party the same party which Benazir Bhutto used to head and the reason perhaps he is not calling out the prime minister for vining and dining, the biggest terrorist in the country is because he goes on to do the exact same thing. And these pictures, ladies and gentlemen, these are all available on Google, by the way. These are not procured by some special uh, investigative agencies. These are all re- available readily on, online. But the mainstream media is also scared of talking about these images and discussing this. The mainstream media made a huge cry and ruckus that Ahmed Udyan told Al Jazeera that he would not be touched, and the National Action Plan would not touch upon him. But they still failed to show these images, which are very easily available on Google, and show the masses that the Prime Minister and the opposition leader are sitting and dealing with them. Now, these right now are the two biggest forces in the parliament. Now, I'm going to jump, and I'm going to skip the third force, and I'm going to jump to the fourth force in parliament, and that's the Muttihidha commune movement. This man, Al-Taw Leads a party which is called the MKM. And he himself at times has been uh, facing allegations of resorting to violence. His party is known as a fascist party who indulges in violence and he refutes all of them as allegations. And he actually, to his credit, has been a very vocal critic of Sepas Sahaba. He's actually been saying that Sepas Sahaba is an outfit which needs to be eradicated. Separat Sahaba is a militant outfit which needs to be shut down. But that's perhaps what he says in public. What goes on behind closed doors is that his party members go on to meet this man, Aurangzeb Faruki, the second in command of Sipah Sahaba. And as you can see, this meeting took place between the grand executive council of MQM and the second chief of Sipah Sahaba in Karachi in Sipa Sahaba's house office, which under the law is uh, an illegal uh, um, facility or an illegal establishment. Now, coming to the third biggest force, which I skipped earlier, Imran Khan, the new face of Pakistani politics, the new challenger to the throne of the Prime Minister, saying that perhaps he is going to bring about a change, and he's been very vocal regarding corruption and elect- and riggings in elections in Pakistan, trying to create a lot of awareness on how our electoral system is so uh, flawed, and we've not been able to choose proper candidates because votes are not being allowed to cast in a free and fair manner, and that's why leaders like Nawaz Sharif or Khurshid Shah come to Parliament. So, Imran Khan's school of thought is that if people are allowed to vote cast in a free and fair manner, responsible leaders will come to the Parliament. And by responsible leaders, the assumption is that they will not be sitting and siding with banned militant outfits like the other three have been doing. But it's very important that even if you have free and fair election, the question begins with, Who is your election candidate? Who is the person you're showing to the public that vote for him in a free and fair manner and get him to the parliament? Because when we're talking about rigging, the worst kind of rigging is when you are deliberately trying to field a corrupt politician or a corrupt leader and giving him as a representative to the masses as their only option to vote for. So talking about Imran Khan's party, only last month uh, in April of 2015, uh, elections took place in the Kashmir which was under Pakistan's jurisdiction, Azad Kashmir. And a man called Sultan Mahmood, who's a barrister, which means a lawyer, and registered with an INS in, in England and is trained, got formal legal training in England, and by the way, was also the former Prime Minister of Azad Kashmir, which was in Pakistan, contested elections from Imran Khan's party, again demanding a free and fair election, and he won as well. So now the assumption is that Imran Khan's candidate in a free and fair manner has come to the parliament, so good things will happen. But perhaps not, because to win that very election, the party with which Sultan Mahmood, Imran Khan's guy, signed in alliance with was Sipar Sahaba Azad Kashmir. And this was a press conference which held, was taken place publicly. Uh, if I've got a laser here by any chance, if this is working, not. But the flag you can see in the middle with the crescent is Sipar Sahaba's flag for Azad Kashmir. The man sitting in front of the mics with the scarf, a Sultan mahmood and if you can see in the top right corner, you can actually see a small image of um, Imran Khan on Sultan Mahmud's election poster as well. So these are the big four parties with their either heads or their members siding with and forming alliances with sipai Sahaba. So regardless of whether we have free and fair elections or not. We have parliamentarians actively supporting this band militant outfit, giving them perhaps assurances in Ahmed Udyanvi's own words that national action plan will not do anything to them. And uh, he is actually not so wrong about it because my laptop also has a lot of video footage of Ahle Sunat Wal Jamaat standing on various street uh, landmarks, public landmarks in various cities of Pakistan, publicly calling. Shias and infidels publicly calling for their heads, publicly threatening the state and saying in those speeches that the day we openly become violent, the army and the FC will not be able to curtail it or control it. And they still say that how we are conducting ourselves, we are still exercising some restraint. Even though they are almost everywhere, and even though uh, they are highly blamed for the specific target killing, of Shias, and not just Shias by the way, any Sunni cleric which disagrees with their view, any Sunni cleric which would give a decree or a fatwa condemning violence, condemning um, suicide bombing is also targeted. Uh, so they are not really pitched against a particular sect, but pitched against any school of thought which does not agree or aligns with exactly theirs. Um, how are they being uh, provided with human resource? Because the madarsas they're affiliated with gets a lot of funding, unaccounted funding from GCC countries and even from the United States of America. According to the Senate report of Pakistan, the top 10 countries giving aid to madarsas in Pakistan also has U.S. as number 10 on the list. Um, And the top three countries are GCC countries on that list. And that money is coming in according to uh, a letter written by Brian Hunt. I think he was an ambassador of U.S. to America back in 2008. And that letter was revealed by WikiLeaks. He wrote that letter to the State Department. And he said that Saudi Arabia alone is sending $10 million for radicalizing youth through madrassas. Uh, And that was just one Brian D. Hunt making perhaps one inquisition, one report, one inquiry, and finding that figure. In the same year, in 2008, an article was published in an English daily called Dawn News, in which they alleged that around 90 billion rupees are coming in for this very same purpose. And the stats keep on varying. Uh, What is very interesting is that the school of thought which Sipa Sahaba belonged to are three times smaller than the other Sunni school of thought. But in terms of having madarsas, the number of madarsas are three times more than the other school of thought. So they have more madarsas per person and because they are not just institutions being used to impart education, but also as training and breeding grounds. And when I use the word madrasa, I also do not mean that the sole purpose of a madrasa is to produce radicals. Purpose of a madrasa is to educate a person. It's a medium. It's just like YouTube was banned in Pakistan. And what we were arguing about was that, yes, perhaps, one blast in this movie should be taken down on YouTube. But you cannot ban the entire medium. Similarly, madrasa is a medium. What I personally have an objection to is the curriculum being taught in that, which is how you actually change and use that medium to your advantage. Tomorrow, if you are t- uh, teaching secular or liberal thought in the same madrasa, it would be producing enlightened clerics as well. But it is because you choose to actually teach them a particular kind of teaching, they are being radicalized. And because of these alliances, because of this, uh, they are dealing with impunity, And also the fact that what is very interesting to note is yes, now, under democracy, they are being embraced, but one would ask how they came about in the first place. Well, Sepa Sahaba was formed in the year 1985, and during that time, we were owned, uh, I would not even say governed, we were owned by a dictator at that time. His name was Ziaul Haq, who brought about Islamization to Pakistan, or rather Sunnization to Pakistan. And um, his Islamization was also partly to aid the, so, uh, the war uh, to defend the Soviet invasion and align with the U.S. in that war and also partly to curtail the revolution in Iran which was also attracting a lot of Sunni youth. So Sipah Sahaba came out to create that divide in Pakistan between Shias and Sunnis and vilify the Shias as much as they can and radicalize Sunni youth. And they have since been providing jihadis for the Afghan war, jihadis for some, some say um, the war in Kashmir as well and primarily trying to curtail any influence or religious influence Iran may exercise in Pakistan. Um, and now the fact that the government is also, the democratic government is also embracing them, has made things so in, uh, grave in nature that when this alliance took place, when this press conference takes place, uh, this candidate is not asking this militant group to pick up guns, and to go to each door in the constituency and terrorize people to vote for them. They're simply asking them, align with me and give me your vote bank. Because even they know, even the big political parties know that these leaders, that these banned outfits have a vote bank. In the year 2013, not one or two, but 55 charged, not alleged, charged terrorists were allowed to contest the general elections in Pakistan. These 55 people feature under a fourth schedule of the Anti-Terrorism Act. So, the state itself has recognized them as terrorists and yet they were allowed to contest elections. And yes, Sipah Sahaba is a banned outfit, a defunct outfit. So, they could not contest from the forum of Sipah Sahaba. But if I may just, um, they contested from a forum called Muttaheda Dini Mahaz. And who does Muttaheda Dini Mahaz belong to? I am going to quickly rewind. The man sitting between the Prime Minister and Ahmed in black, Samuel Haq, and he's very strategically sitting in between right now, between both of them, because he's the man who creates political vehicles like Muthihera Dini Mahas to allow banned outfits like Supaya Sahaba to field their members in general elections. And this guy, the second in command of Supaya Sahaba, contested from Karachi, and he only lost by 200 votes and got more than 23,000 votes in a by-election. In the actual election in which he lost, he got more than 70,000 votes. And then this terrorist complained to the ECP that the election was rigged, so I want a by-election. And the election commission awarded him a by-election. And that by-election took place under the supervision of the Rangers, the paramilitary force, in which he got 23,000 votes. And he still he lost, but 23,000 votes means 23,000 civilians. He's been able to convince, on his narrative, that yes, declare each and every Shia and infidel in Pakistan, and also call out for their heads because the way they spread their hatred culture, the way they've been radicalizing youth, that they've been infiltrating masses, not just in madrasas, by the way, and perhaps universities and academic centers elsewhere as well, in big congregation, in rallies, in religious events, in uh, political rallies, in different kind of events, um, as and when they find, and there are a lot of factors which contribute to a youth perhaps being easily swayed by them. Yes, we suffer from poverty, we suffer from illiteracy, we suffer from unemployment. In urban center, unemployment perhaps is one of the biggest reasons. The economic hardship is perhaps one of the biggest reasons. People who perhaps are not finding enough of uh, a purpose to their life, they are spotted by people like him, people like Sipa Sahaba, And they're radicalizing youth to their own purpose. Perhaps drugs is not something Pakistani youth is turning to so much. Uh, Religion is something, perhaps. And not religion, a perverse form of religion. Because they feel like they're part of something bigger. They're part of something grander. They're part of a community. They're part of a group which has a purpose. And and they're very effective in how they give that purpose to their lives. And there is no counter-narrative to their narrative. Even when I say today that Ahmed is bad, the question is then who is good in Pakistan? Is it the Prime Minister who is sitting with Ahmed Udjanvi? Is it the opposition leader who is sitting with Ahmed Who is the good in Pakistan? Is it the military under whose era was formed? If the government is not good, if the executive is not good, if the security forces are not good, then who is good? It's not enough for us to point out to the people and the masses that Ahmed is a villain. People also need a hero to follow. And we don't have a counter-narrative in Pakistan. The reason for that is that, yes, we've been doing street protests and we've been trying to mobilize people, but now we're also focusing now on how to develop that counter-narrative for the people in Pakistan and to let them know that violence and terrorism is not part of the solution and would never be. It will always remain part of the problem. And violence will beget more violence. And violence and terrorism, at the end of the day, does not know any school of thought. It's a power struggle. Tomorrow, if need be, they will sign an alliance with their biggest enemies. They will even sign an alliance with perhaps a Shia militant group. Very interestingly, end of January, two Shia, two militant groups, one a Sunni militant group and one a Shia militant group, which have been very, very uh, against each other and pose against each other and came into existence, to actually chop off each other's heads. Lashkar-e-Jhangvi, which identifies itself as a Sunni militant group, and Sipayyam Muhammadiy which identifies itself as a Shia militant group. Now, I'm not saying that Sunnis or Shias are militants, but is, these are the school of thoughts they identify themselves with. Five people were on death row are under the National Action Plan, end of January. In fact, more than five people, around eight people under death row. Half of them belong to Lashkar-e-Jhangvi, and half of them belong to sipai muhammadi Both of the parties, which on any other day would chop off each other's of heads, just to save their own, signed an accord, and under the Pakistani legal concept, Islamic legal concept of Diyat, and which means that the affected party, whose fa- the family from whom you've killed someone, can actually forgive the person who's murdered against blood money or something like that. That agreement was reached in the last week of January of this year, and Sipa Mohammadi made the families of the Shia people who were killed by Lashira Jangvi to forgive those people of lashkar jangvi who were on death row. And lashkar jangvi made those Sunni families, people of whom were killed by Sipay Mohamadi, to forgive those people from Sipay Mohamadi who had killed their family members. So they were able to reach that an accord. And on any other day, even though Sipay Mohamadi's existence is almost non existence now, they need completely defunct, But because they had some people on death row, And there are some people still operating in the background, some small or bigger level. They are relevant to a certain extent. But this accord actually took place. Any other day, both of them would advocate and would encourage youth to go and kill the other group. But on that day, they were very easily and comfortably able to reach an accord because they wanted to save their own. And this is not something they would apply on a daily basis. And if they could that eventually, if both of them drop violence, they will be saving their own. But this is not something they do. They only did it when they wanted to save particular specific highly placed soldiers or commanders of their groups. So they did that agreement. And that was also, by the way, was only reduced to a small article in an English daily, and mainstream media did not really report much about it. That such an agreement has taken place. Um, Now, to build that counter narrative and to say that any kind of violence from any kind of group is not going to bring about any good to Pakistan, we are working on an online portal called Never Forget Pakistan. And an online portal because it's urban centers in Pakistan which are primarily de radicalized. Lashkar Jangvi or Separ Sahaba are not uh, banned outfits which are found in the villages of Pakistan but in our urban centers, small towns in, uh, and big towns. And the reason we are also online is because print media and electronic media in Pakistan is highly censored, it's highly regulated, and more than that, they fear a backlash. Journalists have been killed in Pakistan. Printing presses have been burnt to ground. TV channels have been attacked. And they have their interests to protect. So an online television and an online radio, which is going to be operating in a native language, helps us reach out to the urban population in Pakistan in different areas and deliver the message we want to deliver. The first campaign which we are doing in this is making a calendar. It's called which means on this day, And this calendar is going to be archiving since the year 1980 when sectarian violence became mainstream in Pakistan, broke everywhere. It's going to be archiving uh, since 1980 on each day how many people were killed from by which group under whose government. So we get to know that what was the trend, which particular segment of society, which particular sect or ethnic group was being targeted, which particular band outfit was most active, and who was the person in government at that time, perhaps allowing that band outfit, the biggest leeway, to go about and go about the killing. And we're trying to tie that with a geographical database called Hamari Zameen, meaning our land, so that we mark these attacks on the map of Pakistan to identify exactly which district and city and province is worst affected by terrorism, and has been penetrated most by militancy and their ideology. And we need to pay attention to to most in Pakistan. Um, You're also going to be highlighting any reported military training grounds on this map. So we know that where do they exist and they flourish. And known offices of these banned militant outfits. And when we're talking about archiving terror attacks, we're talking about two kind of groups being identified, the terrorists and the victims. And the victims are being reduced to what they are at the end, a dead body. And what mainstream media, and I keep on focusing on mainstream media because they really can formulate public opinion if they want to and that's how they do it in Pakistan. Uh, people are being, again, even watching on television, a particular bomb blast going, uh, taking place in Pakistan. Um, the race which media channels have is on which channel confirms how many people have been killed first. Some channel will say 10 have been killed. The other would say 12 will be killed. The third will say, okay, no, 15 have been killed and we are the first to confirm that 15 have been killed. What they are not talking about is that these people who have been killed as upright Pakistanis, living in Pakistan, and working in dangerous conditions and also some of them also actively fighting terrorism, much like Sabine and other people, are our heroes. And we need to present and showcase their lives as that. So people can get to know that what is the counter narrative, who is our heroes, and not just people, but our children as well. When we talk about these victims being killed, we need to talk about that who was the victim. If he was a father or a mother, what happened to the children? If they were children, what's happened to the parents? If they were a community mobilizer, what's happened to the community? If they were a politician, what happened to the constituency? If they were a teacher, what happened to the students? If they were an employer, what happened to the employees? And cover that part of the society that how one killing one person affects the whole community at large, crossing the boundaries of sect. You may have killed and you may identify that dead body belonging to a particular sect, but that person's life work, which has now come to an end, which they, with their death, may have affected people from different sects as well, in capacity for community mobilizer or an employer or a teacher. And we need to highlight that as well, and also stories of people actively fought terrorism. There have been stories and instances where during a terror attack, either a volunteer or a guard or a school kid has actually intercepted a suicide bomber and minimized damage to the target of the suicide bomber by stepping forward and trying to identify a suicide bomber approaching and stop them midway. In the society, bomber blowing themselves up, killing that one person, but in doing so, saving a whole lot more. And these heroes need to be shown in Pakistan and showcased accordingly so that our young kids as well, and we're trying to work on not just video documentaries but comic books as well. So young people in Pakistan, young children, in a less traumatizing way, our future generation can actually be able to differentiate between the enemies and the youth. And speaking of enemies, of course, this campaign focusing on archiving all the data which we may have available and we are able to collect, of where these band outfit works, where their offices are, where their training grounds are, which uh, newspaper they publish, because they also publish some daily and weekly newspapers, which books they publish, because they also publish books filled with content and literature, which shops sell their CDs and DVDs, uh, how many channels they have on YouTube, how many pages they have on Facebook, how many accounts they have on Twitter, what the government has been able to do and not be able to do about them. Uh, and quickly, I'm going to run through this campaign is more so focused on our history, Hamari because our history has also been perverted in a way that it aids the very conservative and somewhat radical school of thought as well. We have systematically taken out people from our course book and our history books who belong to uh, 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 other faiths than Islam. So every single founding father of Pakistan who was not a Muslim, has been taken out of our history books. Every single person serving in our military, serving as a culture representative, who has done good to actually bring a good name to Pakistan, has been taken out systematically out of our course books. And we only read about Muslims doing good things for Pakistan. And we need to be fair to our history and all those people and let our kids know that every single Pakistani, from different walks of life and different religions, actually contributed to the country we've become today in a good way. Um, This is a think tank we've launched, working with, which is going to be producing content again for this online media. We'll be working with members of the clergy, people who've attended madrasas, who are muftis, who are clergymen, but who are progressive and secular in their thought, and are trying to reform the madrasa curriculum, are trying to highlight to us what exactly needs to be reformed, and also working with us from an Islamic point of view, from a point of view of an Islamic jurisprudence, on how actually laws like blasphemy or hadood ordinance, which hinder rights of women, uh can be challenged, because an Islamic law is best challenged under Islamic jurisprudence in a country like Pakistan, we need to take cognizance of the fact that our constitution is confined by Islamic jurisprudence, we cannot really, our courts do not entertain a secular argument. Hamari um, or Our politics is a campaign focused more on to involve people, and I am going to take this in the q uh, more on people, uh, in how democracy works. People don't even know, because it's not in our textbooks. What are our fundamental rights under the constitution? What we really need to expect from our government? People do not know how MPs and MNAs are supposed to work for, you, so work for you and serve you, how you can petition your MPs and MNAs, how you can petition you know, members of the parliament, how you can push for bills in the parliament, and what is the scope of work of a parliamentarian. And peop- a common lay person does not even know that, hence, he is not, not able to m- make democracy work uh, the way it's supposed to work for them. Uh, this is a citizen journalism app. We're working on trying to involve youth from all over the country because we see people uploading various pictures and videos of these militant outfits all over Facebook. That they would spot some activity of a banned outfit and they'll post it on their Facebook. Or they'll see a picture of them taking out a rally, indulging in hate speech. They'll record an audio or a picture and they'll post it. The idea with this app is to compile all of that data on one portal. To collect all of that empirical evidence, because we have collected all of that from various people across Pakistan who have access to internet and use a smartphone, and there are quite a few of them. We have 35 million internet users in Pakistan. To put pressure in a more organized way into the government of Pakistan, When we have all of that verified and compiled in one location, and the last thing is a helpline which we are setting up to record testimonials of people across Pakistan, a free helpline, uh, who are being persecuted in the name of religion? Who are being threatened in the name of religion? Who are facing false accusation of blasphemy? Uh, who over monetary disputes or property disputes? Because nobody really—I mean, in, as a minority in Pakistan, people are not stupid to commit blasphemy. Uh, in a Muslim majority country, where they know that people are very sensitive about religion, it's usually, as things happen, a monetary dispute or a property dispute, and which some as one party from a Muslim school of thought, identifying the other party from a non-Muslim background, threatening them that either pay up or empty this property or agree to my terms and conditions. Otherwise, I will use the blasphemy law against you and frame a false accusation. And you know good what will happen, that some vigilante lunatic will come out and kill you. So for those people to have a neutral helpline where they in their native language can get uh, counseling, uh, the website is called neverforgetpakistan.com. Uh, it's under construction now because we were just hacked last night. We've restored it, uh, but it's going to take another 24 hours before we go live again. So just because I've been presenting this website, we've already come under attack and our portal was hacked last night. But we were backing up our data, so it's been saved. So it's going to be live again tomorrow. And right now, we are just making people sign up on the portal. And towards the end of summer, all these campaigns are going to go live on the website. Now I think we'll just open the floor. Fantastic.
0: So, Thank you, Jibran. Yeah. That was quite an overview. And I'm going to hold my questions to allow more time. So if you can just wait for the mic and identify yourself.
6: Thank you, Jim Moody. Very (coughs) very interesting. Indeed, I've been listening to everything you said. One thing that struck me, all these pictures of different men doing different things in different places, not one single woman was in those pictures. How were the women in Pakistan
7: reacting to
2: all this violence and difficulty? Well, these pictures, of course, are of parliamentarians. Uh, who meet and greet um, these um, band outfit members. And perhaps the reason we don't see that many female parliamentarians, because majority of the female parliamentarians come to parliament on a reserved seat for women. They don't contest elections on a general seat. They don't actually have to lobby people for vote. They only need to rely on their party doing well in elections and getting their And accordingly, proportionately, they are allotted reserved seats in the elections. These are men who contest on general elections, who need to lobby vote banks in the constituency, and hence are made to form alliances with these. Um, Women as a whole in Pakistan uh, are, again, representing the same kind of school of thought as men are representing, which is a mixed school of thought. Some are radicalized, and some are progressive. Uh, For example, in December of last year, on December 14, to be exact, a video was released from the female seminary of the Lal Masjid, Jamia Hafza in which a group of women clad in burqa called out to Baghdadi, called him their caliph, and asked him to come and bring the Islamic state to Pakistan and throughout the government and avenge the death of bin Laden. And there are 4,000 of those students in Jamia hafza And there the same group of uh, students, female students, who tried to take over Islamabad back in 2007 as well. Uh, it's a mix. Uh, I've got Taliban apologists and own family as well. I've got certain relatives who believe Shias are infidels. And those relatives are men and women both. It's education radicalizing a human, not radicalizing a gender. So uh, when you are in, um, and because madrasas also have female students, schools and universities also have female students. These congregations and rallies also have female students. And they also have female preachers to talk about these things to female students as well. So the women are also being radicalized. Uh, I necessarily do not think that just because of their the gender, they're much more liberal. In fact, in certain instances, um, a lot of act of domestic violence in Pakistan is at times facilitated by fellow women in the house. Um, acts of acid uh, burning, throwing acid on certain people, on certain women, are at times facilitated by other women in the house or in the community. Um, I believe women are equally being radicalized, society is being radicalized as a whole. That's what I've come across in my, I mean, uh, the very, one of the, the second last talk I did in Karachi before coming to the U.S. was hosted by a university called IBA for an organization called Isaac, which is a student community around the world which is trying to shape new young entrepreneurs. And they had gathered students from all the posh schools of Karachi, ARL schools in Karachi, and I asked a question. And you may have heard of Salman Taseer, the former governor of Pakistan, being killed on false charges of blasphemy by his own guard, Mumtaz Qadri. And I took the mic, and I was a speaker. And this is the kind of conversation that I usually have, a very interactive session. I asked a question. Who here thinks Salman Taseer was rightly killed by his guard for blasphemy? The first person to raise a hand was a 16-year-old girl from Manila's posh school. And in fact, she raised both of her hands. That's how excited she was. And I asked her. You think that Salman Tasi was rightly killed? And she said yes. And I asked her, do you remember what Salman Tasi said, which accounted to blasphemy? She said no. She was very opinionated on the fact that Salman Tasi was rightly killed, but she had no idea what he had said for what he was killed for. So I see people and students as a whole being radicalized. Thank you. Uh alaikum. Uh, uh,
8: this... My name is Danish Madrid and uh, I see a lot of uh, concerned Pakistanis here. But I speak to you as a concerned Indian right now. So my first question is: uh, You mentioned a lot of ethnic outfits uh, and, like, you know, civil-military nexuses that give birth to such uh, radicalized groups. But then, um, and you, you, you talked about how, like, the, there's there's somewhat of a campaign to make uh, Shias like. Non-Muslims under the constitution—it's kind of like the '70s, where there was a judicially ordered, uh, you know, um, genocide of sorts against Ahmadis. So, and that was—I uh, think the behind the scene players in that were the Jamaat-e-Islami, in a way. So are they still active uh, right now as the, you know, as the kingmakers? And second of all, you said you talked about going into certain areas and getting people politically socialized. Uh, with regards to religion, what their rights are, their political rights. What about in areas like uh, Karachi, where, they're like, where where people are homogenous relatively in terms of religion, but then you have a lot of ethnic uh, uh, tensions there too with the Balochis versus the Muhajirs and uh, with their respective uh, certain political strongholds. So how do you go, how do you go about penetrating that?
2: Uh, my prime focus and the focus of my work is uh, religious extremism. Uh, not so much the ethnic violence because I, I need to be focused in the area of work I'm doing in. And ethnic violence in Pakistan, again, has been more so political. It erupts at times, it falls at times. Uh, we've heard the same party calling and coming up with slogans of, say, the Mahajir Pathan ittihad and then having a Mahajir Pathan Fasad as well. Aligning with the same, aligning with the same, and then fighting with the same as well, given their own politics, and as I know how they please pleased to do so. But, and by the way, this is by the way a very false notion about Pakistan that we are religiously homogenous. They say that 97% of Pakistan is a Muslim country. That 97% is not able to consider each other a Muslim. Uh, between that 95%, 25% are Shias. Between those Shias, there are Etna Ashiris and Boris and Ismailis, which are not considering each other to be Shias. The remaining 25, 75% are Sunnis. Between those Sunnis, there are Wahhabis and Salafis and Ali and Barelwis who are not considering each other to be Sunnis. Between the Barelvis, the Naqshbandi, and the Kadri, and the Chishti, and the Suharwardi, which are not considering each other to be Barelvi. Between those Sufi school of thought, they are the Hayatis and the Mamatis, which are not considering each other to be aligned as well. So if you really go down at a clergy level, and, the, and how the decrees are given, we are not really a homogenous society. And that's why we are being pitted against, holier than thou, self-righteous. Uh, no, we are the chosen people, not us, 97. But our particular school of thought from one particular imam, we are the chosen people. We are the one going to heaven and not the other one. And everybody else around us is an infidel. In 1953, you mentioned the Ahmadis. When the first uh, communal rights spoke against the Ahmadis, the Supreme Court of Pakistan under Justice uh, Munir called in 14 clerics because the debate started in 1950s whether Ahmadis are Muslims or not. 14 school of thought, 14 different Muslim school of thought, which at that time included the Ahmadis under the Constitution of Pakistan, were called, and all 14 clergy members were asked to define who is a Muslim and what is Islam. And all 14 of them excluded every single school of thought from their own definition of Islam. So not for one school of thought, the other fell in that definition. And there was no genocide ordered against the Ahmadis. The Ahmadis were declared infidel under the Constitution of Pakistan. So yes, the Constitution deems them as not good enough as an intellectually, legally, morally lower being. Because when the state is acting like God and is determining your rights as per your religion, it is actually telling those people who qualify as a Muslim under the Constitution that those who are not qualifying as non-Muslim, as Muslims, those who are non-Muslims, are not good enough to lead the country. And that actually has a trickle-down effect in our own social interaction amongst people as well. Um, So that is something, of course, law would require reform. But at the same time, a radicalized population would produce a radicalized parliament, which would produce radicalized laws and a radicalized amendment. So we need to to de-radicalize the masses first, create awareness amongst them first on what state is supposed to do, what you're supposed to do as humans, and what does it mean belonging to the Pakistan family as a whole. And also, at the moment in time, the civil-military nexus that you pointed out. We also need to make cognizance of the fact that the state is not absolutely corrupt. The military is not absolutely corrupt. The parliament is not absolutely corrupt. Every single state institution has sane, progressive, liberal people working which still makes the country work, for which I still have hope. I have parliamentarians from all these four parties which I just highlighted coming out and showing support to us as well. But then again, also telling us that we are the minority amongst our parties. And we need people to amplify our voices. Similarly, even though it was people like zhao Haq, who brought about these banned outfits, but the military also has those 5,500 soldiers, which have died fighting these banned outfits, but still believe So that conflict is within the parliament. That conflict is within the military. That conflict, as I said, is in my own household. When I'm fighting with my own uncles who who believe Shias are infidels. So if the conflict is in my own house, and my house is like any other household in Pakistan, which produces members to the bureaucracy and the civil service and the parliament and the army, that's why the conflict is in the society as a whole.
0: Some good. The side, the second row. Oh. Okay, we'll
9: second, go here and then bye uh, Jibran first of all, let me commend you for your thorough understanding of Pakistan's complex challenges. And Can you
0: introduce yourself, please?
9: Sorry? Introduce uh, yourself. My name is Athar Javed. I'm president of a think tank in D.C. We are dedicated to a progressive and politically stable Pakistan. We are two years old, and we are getting in our uh, programs to do... Grassroots projects in Pakistan. Uh, I have known Jabran since uh, December of 2014, and when I saw his first video statement, I instantly, you know, thought this: these are the kind of people we need in Pakistan. So I really commend you for your thorough understanding of the challenges, the complex challenges we face in Pakistan, and secondly, on what you're trying to do. Your plan of uh, action in different areas like uh, 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 politics, encouraging our heroes, and so on, are commendable. I I wish you all success. But please tell me, uh, do you see an impact of what you're doing uh, by the time we are ready
2: for another election in 2018? So I'm not contesting in 2018? I know, but uh and no i i i i as a whole of course like to inform, influence influence electorate for them to actually choose the leaders wisely and for them to hold their respective political parties these four political parties more accountable through the ballot box next time they go and vote and demand of these political outfits what are the strategy for counterterrorism, and what are they doing about their own members who are aligning with terrorists and that change may not come in a very visible form in 2018, but perhaps more so in 2023, uh, the elections after that. We are starting and focusing for 2018 to have an influence and to hold m and MPs accountable in the big urban centers of Pakistan, like Karachi and Lahore and Peshawar and Quetta and Islamabad and some other cities as well, uh, close to 10 cities, where we know that internet is most readily available youth is very much online and connected. Right. And that's where we want to see if we are able to influence the discourse and how election rallies are going to be taking place in those cities and what people are talking about and what MNAs and MPs are talking about. So all these campaigns, and they're going to be gearing up, and you're going to be gearing up in a way that we keep on hammering. Then in 2018, when you go to vote, you very well ask this question as your first question, that what is your MPA and MNA candidate doing, trying to do of willing to do to counter-terrorism and what he's trying to do and within his own party to isolate all those voices in the parliament who are aligning themselves with the terrorists.
9: Yeah, I, I certainly appreciate your focus on terrorism. How about uh, land reform?
2: So that's not my area of, of focus right now and it cannot be. Uh, I, I believe uh, since I'm not signing up for the office of the Prime Minister, You cannot expect me to solve Pakistan's each and every problem. But when I do, uh, I will definitely be coming and prepared with all those answers.
6: Hi, my name is Amy Kalfas. I work at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Uh, First of all, thank you for your presentation. It was very insightful. Um, As you showed in the presentation, I think you've done a fantastic job of using technology and social media to really mobilize, uh, especially youth, um, which is really commendable. Um, unfortunately, with the increase of visibility also become also comes an increase of security threat and recently we've seen um, a rise of attacks against journalists and civil society leaders like Raza Rumi, who was one of our fellows, and of course Sabine Mahmoud, um, who we all, many of us um, knew and worked with. Um, so in light of this, how have you seen civil society leaders responding and working together and what can be done to protect civil society leaders and activists um, as they stand for the rights of others?
2: The same civil society leaders who today call me an agent of various different state institutions are gonna gather on my funeral when that happens, and are gonna call me their martyr. And that's again, a tragedy in Pakistan. That Sabine was alone till she was alive, but everybody gathered around her dead body. That is why Sabine was targeted. That is why Raza was targeted. When Raza was targeted, there were fellow anchors on other news channels, questioning his motives, questioning the attack, asking whether this was staged, whether this was self-inflicted. His own ranks were divided. Uh, the sense of community, is not there in Pakistan as well. Uh, Just because somebody is working in the civil rights area, I'm not saying that I'm the best one and I'm the best pet here. But I know of people who are primarily working on rights because it pays their salary. It's not because they really are concerned with what's going on. I found it really obnoxious and uh, that a seminar on poverty is taking place. And you've gathered all the experts to speak on poverty in a five-star hotel where the poor man will never be able to have a single meal. It's very strange that you were able to spend that much money in that much of a luxurious buffet in that kind of a hall of the funding you got, rather than taking and using that funding out in the field. Um, this is one example I'm trying to give. And more than that, the religious right questioned my faith. They called me a Shia. They called me an Ahmadi. They called me a blasphemer. Those are the allegations they had against me. The civil society activist called me an intelligence agent, called me somebody with his own political aspirations, who was doing all his work to contest election in 2018 and whatnot. But of course, there's some people uh, supported as well, some nice people. But this is the message I also want to give to people, that if you're not going to stand for each other, who you believe is trying to fight the same battle as you are, perhaps with a different approach. Nobody's going to stand for you as well. And uh, the worst battles I've fought and the most exhausting battles I've fought are apparently with fellow civil society activists on how to do the protest and where to do it. And that's why I saw that street protests were leading a snow way in Pakistan because we were bickering and fighting amongst ourselves. That's why I stepped out of it and now I'm focusing on mainstream media and mass media, online media to spread the message as a whole because um, as sad as it sounds, and I'm sorry for painting the picture, but this is true, that uh, people are less interested in sending the message out to the masses, to radicalize youth and de-radicalize them and are more interested that who is shown as the leader of the movement in the papers. It's something so silly, and this is something we we suffer from in Pakistan in every single department, even in our politics as well, even within the same party, MNAs and MPs are fighting about these very simple petty issues, that who is going to be the closest to the head of, who is going to get the best portfolio in the cabinet, regardless of not whether they are even capable of getting that portfolio, given their qualifications, so yes. We need to have a bigger sense of community. We need to have more unity. We're trying to work on that as well with like-minded individuals and trying to recruit more people and trying to give that message to the people that sooner or later they'll come for you if you do not stand united right now. Sabine struggled day in and day out to get support for the art gallery she was trying to run, which is called T2F. That if you could get funds for that, if you get people gathered around that. The day Sabine died, Everybody was pouring their heart out, how can we help T2F survive? You could have helped it survive. You could have helped Sabine survive when she was alive. So this is another tragedy, but this is, this is a ground reality in Pakistan, sadly.
0: Um, my name is Nushat Sultan, and I'm one of those concerned Pakistanis um, or a Pakistani-American. And I'd like to know how we can assist you, how we can help how, as non-resident Pakistanis, we can do something. Because I'm very encouraged by what you're doing. And I feel very helpless here.
2: Well, uh, I believe that the one thing you could do, because you mentioned yourself as a Pakistani-American, you need to realize that a, a part of you associated with Pakistan sees Nawaz Sharif as his prime minister, the other half associated with America should embrace Obama as his president. Pakistani Americans need to get political here. They need to get politically engaged. Perhaps in DC, you may find Pakistani Americans doing that. But as a whole, this is the 16th, 17th city I've been in. I've gone all the way to the east coast, the west coast, the south. I uh, Pakistanis in America, with the children being born in America and going attending college in America, are fighting about. What are political parties doing back home? And if I talk to them about what is your local Democrat and Republican doing right now, and they have no idea. A lot of good can come because America is our ally. Uh, USAID is heavily involved in Pakistan. State Department is heavily involved in Pakistan. The US government is heavily involved in Pakistan. Um, A lot of lobbying happens from the US, changing Pakistan's own policy at times. A lot of pressure could be put on that. And it would be good if the pressure coming from the US also has representation of Pakistani Americans, which not only have America's interests at heart, because America's government is supposed to. I mean, we, we may think that um, America um, sorry, um, presents itself at times as the world police, but it's not really. It's really serving its own interest, like every country is supposed to do. And I don't hold it against America. If we were in their place, we would do the exact same thing. But Pakistani Americans being in those two shifts together, can perhaps push for such bills in the Congress in America to put those kind of pressure on on Pakistan, which should actually help Pakistan in the longer run. Um, We can wait for overseas Pakistanis to get uh, voting rights. We can do that. Besides that, and we'll see what will happen then, but besides that right now, you would know a lot of Pakistani Americans also do a lot of fundraising for political parties back home. Also, next time, when you're spending a dime on a political party back home, ask him the question, what about this? Those are the best two ways you can help. The third way is, if you're a bit more charged than that, sign up on the portal when we go live again tomorrow. Wait for us. It's a very it's a very easy website to remember. Never forget Pakistan. You should never forget Pakistan as a principal as well, <laughs> if you're from <laughs> Pakistan. But you know, log, log into it tomorrow. There's a sign-up page on it. Sign up. Come on the portal. When we're going to be sending out these... Per, Uh, campaigns, we're looking for partners here as well. People who can develop apps for us. People who can develop websites. People who are videographers and filmmakers and documentary makers. Journalists and broadcasters and researchers and academics who have done research in South Asia, who have worked in Pakistan and have collected data, empirical data, and can help us populate content. Uh, People like Raza Rumi now, who are in America, but still can perhaps broadcast news for us because primarily being in America, they're much more safer. Raza himself may not like to sign for for it, but there are many people and journalists of Pakistani origin who are working on local radios here, which reaches out to the local community. And I want them to come on as broadcasters on our our online media because people in Pakistan have that risk that if they show their face to the camera, they can get targeted. But Pakistani living here can read out that same piece of news and show their face and still not fair for their life. So I
0: know that we have a couple more questions. And in the uh, interest of time, I'm going to ask you to please keep it should, concise Yes, sir. Short. Uh,
7: my name is Kami Bhatt. I'm the Pakistani Spectator. And my question is, how do you tackle the problem of secretarian and class thing? Secretarian means we talk with the MQM friend, and they blame everything on Pathan. And we talk with Pathan, and they blame so that's everything ethnic, on MQM. That's and the other thing is about class thing. Uh, there was a program at uh, New America Foundation uh, Peter Bergen was doing it and I was in Lahore Lahore Press Club. And I asked them, let's brought, uh, have interaction, direct interaction with those people in Washington. And they hated so much this Raza Rumi guy. They said, listen, he never came here. We don't know. We just have, know his name. But he d- never bothered to even come here, show up. So we have nothing to relate with him. So why should we see him while he doing I said, listen, he is doing something for you guys. It's about, about, about how many Pakistani journalists have been killed. That program was, as a matter of fact, in their interest. But they didn't want to listen because Raza Rumi belonged to a different class. Thanks.
2: So first of all, I think the, the, the conflict you're talking about is not sectarian, it's ethnic. The Mahajir, Punjabi, Pathan, Baloch difference. I've already answered that question, by the way, earlier. Uh, so I, I would not repeat that and we're going to quickly at the question. And the other class thing you talked about, I think you're talking about one being an American and the other being a Pakistani?
7: No, no, he is like, they consider him very elite. Who? Are not with Raza Bhumi.
2: Who considered him elite?
7: A big journalist in
5: Lahore Press Club.
2: So that's perhaps professional animosity, which I also just touched upon right now, uh, questioning uh, the question here. Uh, That's again a person's own perception regarding somebody being too elite. That's not my area of focus. My area of focus is uh, counter-religious extremism and religious intolerance, not how people from a poor income bracket uh, perceive the people who are from a richer or or a bigger income bracket. Uh, That, as a whole, of course, only government policy can change around the fact that we do not have community centers, we do not have community sports complexes, we do not have public parks, we do not have places where the rich and the poor can interact. There are only two places in Pakistan where the rich and poor interact. It's either over a counter when the rich is ordering the poor to give him two Big Macs, or it is in the mosque where the imam is leading the congregation and not enough conversation is happening. Here, perhaps, there's a better sense of community because when you go to a park here, people on the run belong to different income brackets. And you go to a local community sports complex or a community gym or a swimming pool, people from different income brackets come in and interact with each other and make a conversation. But in Pakistan, there are, I mean, deteriorating parks for the poor and their are clubs for the rich. their are theaters for the poor and cineplexes for the rich. their shopping centers for the poor and malls for the rich. So that is, as a whole, in our society, the problem. And I alone cannot, of course, take on that beast.
0: I'm going to ask, actually, the last three questions. We have one here, said, and yourself. Uh, Marvin, did you have one as well? Okay, so we'll take these last four, if we can just keep them really short. Uh, uh,
6: Sharon Bovat, Voice of a Moderate. Uh, We've had some American bloggers that have had issues with court systems, um, but we've had the constitution that's protected us. And then I noticed I've been blogging for six years that during the um, Arab Spring, my blog was read by the people in Egypt. And we've talked about creating certified blogging for the international bloggers like yourself and other activists because there's nobody to protect them when they are Prosecuted or just burned alive what you showed us today have you ever looked into doing an organization like the United Nations to protect some of the bloggers that are doing the important stories
2: well uh, bloggers haven't been burnt alive in Pakistan bloggers haven't been killed in Pakistan for their blogs yes, journalists have been targeted, but those are mainstream journalists uh, trying to take up on some sensitive issues or trying to do some kind of stories. Uh, but generally bloggers as a whole haven't really faced certain charges. Of course, uh, yes, against some of them, blasphemy was framed, but then again, they were actually violating that law, and that law does exist, and the United Nations, whatever how powerful it may be, cannot really protect a blogger from a blasphemy law because that's protecting a law which exists in Pakistan, and that's the reality in Pakistan. If there is a law, regardless of how perverse it may be, how wrong it may be, how flawed it may be, but whosoever is breaking it, just by being a blogger or a journalist cannot give you impunity from it. You, it is, the law is there to regulate everybody. The, what you can question is why the law is there and how you can change that. But the fact that the law is being broken, regardless of how if you're writing about it or you're actively doing blasphemy yourself, is, is a different question. But uh, I believe more than the United Nations, what uh, Pakistan should focus on we do have press clubs and members in press clubs as well, but like I mentioned, yeah, like the gentleman just right here mentioned that Raza Rumi was seen as an elitist journalist and other journalists from the press club were not identifying with him. We don't even have a guild of journalists. But regardless of whatever your cast, maybe you could actually have, a, 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 similarly, a guild for bloggers as well. But then again, with bloggers, the interesting thing is that they do not uh, resort themselves to any editorial policy. They also do not resort themselves to, being, uh, to having their facts verified. Blogging is also dangerous in a country in Pakistan because it can also create a lot of false propaganda, propaganda. And I've come across a lot of irresponsible bloggers who just to get hits on their website actually fabricate stories and exaggerate things. And then I also want to work on something which brings that things to account because they are actually creating more and further divides between the, between the society. Uh, there is a um, particular uh, group of bloggers in Pakistan which calls Deobandis terrorists. Now, yes, Sipai Sahaba is a group of terrorists which identifies themselves as Deobandis, but does not equate to Deobandis being terrorists. Just like Bin Laden called himself Muslim, but does not mean Muslims are terrorists. It just means that Bin Laden, in his mind, calls himself a Muslim. So there's a whole group of bloggers which actually also criticized me that I don't call the Ubandis terrorists. He wanted me to declare a whole school of thought terrorists and that was just creating further divide. And I wanted to know how can we bring this whole group of bloggers to an action because they had a very active and they still have a very active reading as well. Um, Pakistan for All, our other forum which we work on, which Sabine was a part of and co-founder of All, has been primarily set up to work on violation of civil liberties. Where we are looking up, to engage, and that is of course, that group primarily is being handled by other members along with me because I can only give so much time to so many causes. Uh, But, uh, so the the team on that is much bigger. And we are are trying to engage lawyers as a whole to protect people from all different segments of society on violation of their rights. So be it a trader or a laborer, but that's a completely different body of work as opposed to this one which I'm talking about today. We're gonna
0: take all the questions together. So keep them short, please.
5: Uh, my name is Saeed Nazir Afridi. I'm from tribal areas of Pakistan. I'm a journalist. So I helped the government establish a radio station in Fatah for the first time. So uh, my, my job was to counter the messages of t- uh, Taliban in Fazeera. the region. Mangalba, Fazdullah, Hakimullah, and Baitullah Mesud. And I worked there for seven years. But my strategy was different from yours because you are very open and you are uh, challenging the uh, Taliban very directly. And I was very indirect because I was from Fatah and I was among the Taliban, so, and and, uh, who were ruling the area. So this is why I I have been alive so far. Uh, They have not been able to, to, they they didn't kill me. Uh, My point is, uh, when you ask someone in Pakistan like Pashtun, when you ask them, who are you, they say, I'm Pashtun. then Then you ask, who are you, then they will say Muslim and for the third time when you ask they will say i am pakistani and the same in the other part of pakistan the first answer will be i am muslim and then pakistani so i appreciate your efforts that you have established online a platform for the pakistanis to counter the extremism but what do you think that uh, will you reach out to the uh, rural pakistan where the where we see the extreme type of Islam, which is spreading there, like Salafi, and, um, Salafi Islam, Wahhabi Islam, and the hard, the hard type of Islam is spreading there. And the second question is, if you don't talk about Islam, if you don't talk about modern Islam and you don't come up with the uh, uh, interpretation of Islam, modern Islam, so how can you counter the uh, uh, extreme type of Islam? uh,
0: I'm going to ask you actually just to think the last two as well, because they may be overlapping. I'll I'll,
2: I'll just confuse. I I just may forget. I just may (laughs) forget. That's why. So this particular campaign, Reclaim Your Mosque, where we are working with members of the clergy, is specifically designed to talk about the counter-narrative within Islam, the progressive liberal narrative within Islam, the more tolerant view inside of Islam, and to save it from the perversions which you are talking about. Furthermore, our reach would be limited when the portal goes live. It's, It's under construction right now would be limited by how far online technology is able to penetrate parts of Pakistan. So wherever there is internet, we will be able to, be able to penetrate. Um, the reason we're not able to set up, uh, because we're gonna be talking a lot of things, we're, going to be, we're not just gonna be critical of the Taliban, we're gonna be critical of the civil military nexus with the Taliban and terrorists as well. So it means before the Taliban, we may actually get attacked by the state of Pakistan. It's not just one enemy you're looking at in Pakistan as well, you should also be mindful of that. and. Uh, um, uh, I believe that the fact that you have been alive so far, Alhamdulillah, is because you were meant to. Because none of those kids in Peshawar school challenged the Taliban, they were killed regardless. And thousands of Pakistanis have been killed regardless. So yes, we do, uh, and we do intend to have uh, content on these portals in regional languages. So they will be content in Pashto as well, podcasts and radio broadcasts in Pashto as well. And the same article which we're going to be publishing in English, we're going to be translating it into Sindhi and Balochi and Urdu and Punjabi and in Pashto for the regional people to read it as well with more proficiency and understand it much better. Because language again breaks a lot of barriers. And that whole notion very strange that one dictator spent 10 years telling people that you're a Muslim first in the 80s. Then the other dictator of the millennium spent 10 years telling people that you're a Pakistani first. So them trying to undo their own own things. And what connects us is perhaps our uh, nationality. Uh, your own regional identity, you being a Pashtun is of course something you take pride in. And everybody should take pride in on their own culture roots. But uh, as a country, what we need right now is, is unity on a national level. The fact that yes, you're a Pakistani. I'm proud of the fact that I'm a Pashtun or I'm proud of the fact that I'm a Muslim, yes. But what I am in Pakistan is a Pakistani.
0: Do you have, I mean, I know, I know you're tight for time. Can we take two
2: final
0: questions? Yeah, yeah sure, sure. We can take fine? more. All
3: right. Can we take yours and then Marvin will hmm. close up? Yeah, my name is Vakas uh, from the Embassy of Pakistan. Um, I'll uh, refer to a few of your comments that you gave regarding uh, 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 what you're working on. Uh, m- most uh, important are the media that you're working on, the mainstream as well as the uh, online media and also uh, the religious parties or the extremism that you're tackling. Now. I have attended few of the events here in uh, DC which were on the civil society and that included uh, also references or examples or the actual things that have happened in rural areas where the civil society on its own took that challenge like what happened in Shikarpur and uh, after the attack on the Shiite mosque, there were uh, uh, prayers in the Sunni mosques uh, for them. Then I also see that in Islamabad since 1st May, I don't know has that been implemented or not, that since 1st May, uh, the prayer timings uh, are now same for the Sunni and the Shiites. And the biggest problem was probably on you know, the Maghreb uh, timings and uh, the, the, Sh- the Sunnis delayed it by uh, five and uh, the Shiites, uh, they agreed to uh, go by three minutes. Now, how does that connect to reclaim your mosque? Are, are you looking at this with people signing up onto you and then utilizing this forum or you'll be reaching out to those guys utilizing the uh, already uh, reports that are published out um, uh, reaching out to those people and getting them on board because these become the important people that uh, victims are. but the people who are actually spreading that that those can be challenged from within uh, the same group of people. And uh, I can certainly uh, share some of information, some of the information later on also after the event.
2: So first of all, I would identify Shikarpur as well right now uh, as a small urban center, a bit advanced than just a village. And more than that, uh, what happened there with the Sunnis coming and praying together also had to do with a particular political outfit present there and encouraging that, namely MWM and what happened with Islamabad, and uh, I'm gonna come to the pay timing later, but but with reclaim your mosque, what we're trying to do is we're trying to educate the masses, the congregation and a mosque, on the basic debates which are going on in Pakistan right now. Like Takfirism, what is it? Because there are certain imams in the mosque which will declare anybody a kafir. What is Takfirism? So the congregation should know the actual references from Islamic jurisprudence, so if they actually see or hear the Imam telling them something which is not factually correct but only politically motivated, they can actually question him because they have that information. What is jihad and when it is allowed? The congregation should know that not just from the Imam, because the Imam may again be politically motivated. The concept of minority rights, what they are, and how is the Imam usually telling them about it time and again. The concept of these laws, like the blasphemy law and the Hadood ordinance. So when the Imam is talking about them, the congregation knows the facts to so actually question it. The one thing right now I'm trying to do is not having Sunni spray in Shia mosque and Shia spray in Sunni mosque. What I'm trying to do is the Sunni congregation, first of all, being able to question the Sunni imam. And the Shia congregation, first of all, having to be able to question the Shia imam and have that dialogue first within their own mosque. They are so afraid to talk to their own imam. The clergy here is, within the Christian school of thought, is called a father. And you go and confess to him your grossest sins. In Pakistan, you are afraid to ask the simplest of questions because you think that he may impose a fatwa on you if you piss him off or rub him the wrong way. And because people are not educated on those basic things about religion, the idea is not here to preach. The idea is not here to replace a bad mullah with a good mullah. The idea is to set the narrative right so the people know that what you may be teaching may be wrong because this is what is right. So, next time when you hear these things in your mosque, try and identify with them this and actually quote them the exact references from the jurisprudence, from the Quran, and from the Sunnah. So, people can get to, and get that dialogue going on. And furthermore, um, I know the government in the right mind thought that perhaps having this exact same time for the call to prayer may promote unity. And, and let's see, uh, let's see if that works out because I'm not entirely sure if people used to take offence to the fact that why is there Azan different and why is our Azan different. Uh, because I thought, you know what, that's celebrating diversity. That is actually letting people pray at whatever time they wish to. Why not? Let them. Uh, if somebody wants to offer Maghreb and Isha together, let them. That's again what we're trying to do. Why are we so hell-bent on legislating a man's relationship with God? Why can't he pray at a time he wishes to? It's his God he's praying to. What role has, does the state has to play? That when we declared Ahmadis as infidels, we were actually trying to, and, and made an ordinance by Zia, that you cannot pose a Muslim. We were actually telling a man how to and how not to bow down to God. So the state of Pakistan actually legislates that intimate rela- relation between a man and God. And we should stop doing that, I guess. And by the way, I'm really glad that you attended. The first person from the embassy of Pakistan in any of my talks who actually came, somebody took interest. <laughs> well, yeah. All right. Final yeah.
3: question. Yes,
4: uh, Marvin Wyman the Middle East Institute. Uh, you're not trying to change the attitude of political leaders, and you're not targeting uh, imams to try to change their thinking. What you're doing is, it seems to me, if I understand you correctly, you're really aiming at this youth bulge, which uh, I think we all recognize uh, is potentially. Uh, a a game changer. How confident are you, though, that because of your approach here through the social media, you're really reaching that bulge? Uh, Surveys that I've seen indicate uh, a lack of tolerance and uh, uh, democratic thinking among so many of the young people. uh, are, you really, are you really going to be getting at the people who, who I think are, are most likely to, the very large number who are most likely to, to create the kind of future that you're talking about?
2: So to start off with the imams, uh, those imams who are already progressive and are vocal about it, are exiled from the country or go into civil exile or are killed. Uh, imam, imams like Safaraz Numani, who gave a fatwa against suicide bombing, was attacked himself through a suicide bomber. Uh, clerics like Javed Ramzi, who currently is on a US tour speaking at Maryland today, I was told, took self-exile because he gave so, his views on jihad. They should not tally with those of the militants and the radicals. And those imams right now, which are right now teaching the perverse ideology, are doing so to gain and spread their own influence on the masses. And they would not change their view because they have nothing to gain out of it because they primarily increase and have their influence through fear. Not because people love them back, it's because people are afraid of them, are afraid to question their authority. We have an imam right now, one of the biggest imams in Pakistan, Mufti Naim, sitting in one of the biggest madrasas of Pakistan, Jame Banuriya Karachi, declaring the information minister of Pakistan only a week ago an infidel and calling for his head publicly. And nobody did question them. The political leaders of Pakistan, if I come to them, they again are not interested because if the masses are ignorant and they still get to be in power, why would they change their views to educate the masses? Because at the end of it, why Pakistan has been suffering is because our politicians are self-serving. Until and unless the vote bank does not demand change from from the leaders, the leaders will not change their views. We have tried, so many civil rights activists have tried and educationists have tried to reform our own education curriculum which comes under the control of the government, which is filled and riddled with a hate speech. 242 exact lines of hate speech are there, teaching people grudges and biases against Christianity and Hinduism in our education curriculum. One of the most vocal person who is working with the Sindh education department, Dr. Bennett, just left the country two weeks ago facing a death threat. And she was trying to work within the system. And she kept, and I met her on a couple of occasions, she kept on telling me and other people in um, in those meetings that the government does not want to change because a parent of a Muslim student who's sending his kid to school is not questioning the teacher that, why is my kid studying this rubbish? So why would the teacher change it? And if the teacher doesn't want to change it, why would the principal change it? And if the principal doesn't want to change it, why would the education board change it? Because the parents, the consumer does not find anything wrong with the product. If you don't find anything wrong with your bagel, and you don't return it, the vendor is not going to change it for you. So the idea is for them to realize that there's a better, for the youth to realize there's a better life for you for that. And even youth, which eyes on internet, the person they have right now arrested for the killing of Sabine Mahmood graduated from the alleged killer, graduated from the Institute of Business Administration. If I have to draw an analogy, it is officially the Stanford of Pakistan. And as you being educated from that, he is the guy who's apparently the mastermind behind Sabine's killing. And he went to the same posh era of school I went to. That kid is two years younger than me. I've got 29 mutual Facebook friends with him. 15 of my own buddies attended school with him. And he turned out to be apparently the alleged killer of one of my closest friends. We do not even know if in our university, the kid sitting next to you. Maybe playing sports, soccer, and cricket with you, but may very well want to kill you for your belief because that discourse never happens. You take people in school and universities based on their SAT scores, and SATs are judging you on your arithmetics and your grammar, not on your religious and political views, and no education curriculum is there, no syllabus there, no, co- no organizers seminars are taking place in schools. There are a lot of taking place on how to make entrepreneurs out of kids. A lot of taking place on how to motivate the kids. A lot of taking place on how to explore business opportunities. None are taking place on how to improve tolerance, have an interfaith dialogue, have an intersect dialogue. Let people share their grudges and vent their anger. And learn because a majority of these grudges are based on misinformation and rumours perpetuated by the same imams. And the dialogue is never taking place, even at the best of friends. I've come across people confiding into me in a group. A group of best friends meets me and one of them, for the first time in my prison, tells the remaining of his group that he's an Emadi and they've been best friends for five years. But he's able to tell that in my presence because he saw his other friends are aligned with me. So he finally thought that his friends would not kill him for being an Emadi. So he confided into with his best friends about his own fate. They did not know that before and I've had many of those kids like that. And those are all university going kids.
0: Well, I know we've kept you much longer than we'd than we'd asked for, so thank you so much um, for attending today, and please join me in giving Jiban a round of applause for being with us. Thank you.